This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. My mindset in preparing this, just to get you into my mind, is I pictured all the advanced students here. Uh, instead, we have we do have some of them that are carryovers from the uh, classic that we're just finishing up, but we really only have one new arrival so far of our advanced training. So this this was. Was that weird for you guys too? Or is that just weird for me? <laughs> that ranks up there with Nathan's uh, thing the other day, doesn't it? This could be all timer. Uh, and it was Nick this time. Uh, are we still live? Are we still going? Okay, great. I'm glad that uh, people that are streaming could participate in that. Uh, but if, if someone that was streaming didn't get that, my voice came out of the speakers over here saying something that sounded like the very beginnings of, was it, did it sound like the very beginnings of this one, too, or just like the beginnings of just a daily thunder somewhere along the line? I don't know, but it was a good moment. But, uh, so my desire was to lay a foundation for the newly arriving advanced students who have gone through this training, but I wanted to bring a refresher to them. And so, that's going to be important for those of you that are carryovers from the classic training and for Jessica. This will obviously be uh, great for you. You'll, you'll enjoy this. Uh, however, it is significant for all the ones that aren't receiving this too because this is just good old classic uh, foundational Christianity. This is how it works. Many of us inherit this beautiful car uh, and it looks so good on the outside and it's doctrinally correct and it has nice leather seats but it doesn't work, it doesn't go anywhere. You can't get it to turn over and get that engine revved, and so as a result, it just sits in a parking lot. And Christianity is not meant to sit, it is meant to do, it is meant to accomplish something, produce fruit. And the way in which that works is what we're going to talk about today. The secret is what we call grace, but grace is a mysterious term in our, day, in our modern day church because it has been distorted. Just as it says in Jude that there will be ungodly men that creep into the church and that they will turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, or another translation would say licentiousness, or a license to sin. In other words, the grace becomes the excuse to sin as opposed to the means by which we overcome sin. You see the twist in there? It becomes a license to sin instead of the power to overcome it. And so when grace becomes a license, like, oh, I can do that, I'm, I'm under grace, uh, then what you've done is you've distorted. It's, an, it's the work of ungodly men <laughs> that do that. And yet, it's weird, but if you were to evaluate modern Christianity and its mindsets towards grace, that's actually what grace is. Is It's sort of like, oh, I'm just so glad I'm under grace because I'm sinning all the time, as opposed to recognizing, wait, I'm under grace, therefore God gives me power so that I don't need to live this way anymore. And it's a complete 
uh, shift of thought that is critical that we once again regain. And so uh, the title of this one is The Hand in the Glove. And anyone that spent time at Ellerslie knows the hand in the glove. And that's why I'm going to say a reminder of how it's done. What's it's in that statement? Well, you know, it's Christianity. A reminder of how it's done. This is how we live out the Christian life. <coughs> Sorry, I haven't even turned on my clicker after all that time. So a marriageable man. Uh, I don't know if I went through this in the classic training, but this is a fun uh, reminder for anyone. I, I, when Leslie and I would uh, travel, well, she would travel uh, and speak at women's conferences and drag me along. That might be a better way of saying it. So we would travel, yes, but it was sort of awkward. I'm the only guy in this sea of femininity. And at a certain point in time in, the, uh, in her event, she would invite me to come up. And she says, I'm going to have my husband come up and he's going to share with uh, all you women, especially all you young ladies out there, uh, what makes a marriageable man. And so then I come up, and, uh, and it's my moment, right? And so I, I would, you know how we, we have ratings of like the perfect 10? Well, so that's what I did. I established the 0 to 10 scale. And, it's, and then let's talk about when a man is marriageable. You know, do we have to wait till he's a 10? He's perfect. No, no one would ever get married because that's Jesus, and no one actually has ever reached that point, uh, this side of heaven, but, you know, that would be nice, but... No, it's not that they have to be perfect. It's just that there's certain things that have to be established. So I talk about how when a man is awakened, he sees the vision of what he ought to become. Now, there's many men on earth that have never been awakened. So they're just a zero. And I tell the girls, don't marry a zero. <laughs> don't marry a man that's never even been stirred from his lethargy to see that there's something more than what he has right now. And so it's this picture. It's this picture of Christ-like manhood. It's this picture of being strong when strength is required, being soft and sensitive when soft and softness and sensitivity is needed. And so a man sees it and it stirs him in the depths of his being and he rises up and he says, I want that. And so the carrying device to get there is this stallion and it is bright white, rippling with muscle. It's snorting smoke and fire. It's just this incredible creature. And so the man instinctively knows he needs to ride this to get to that. And so he swings his leg over the, the side of the, the, the stallion. He goes, charge! And so I'm going to call that a one. Okay, a one is, is a man who has been awakened, alerted to the fact that there's so much more to his masculinity than he ever realized. And so he has thrown his leg over the stallion and, and cried, charge. And here's what I would say. Don't marry a one. Now, for many women on earth, a one is, I mean, just about as exciting as it gets because they've never seen a man actually awaken to the fact that there's more. He's actually desiring it. I mean, this is good stuff, but don't marry him. It's, it's neat. It's good stuff, sure. It's great to see the man stirred by the Holy Spirit to witness and to, and to understand and comprehend the, the grandness of what God intended a man to be, but don't marry him yet. You see, a, that guy has no clue what he's getting himself into. He has just thrown his, his leg over the side of a very powerful uh, creature. And if you just watch, if we said, okay, count to two, one, two. He's, in, he's airborne already. And he's being bucked off this stallion. He's flying through the air, and he's going to land in that mud pile that he spent a good deal of his life in. And so the key is uh, to not marry him, but watch. Okay, give him an opportunity to prove himself. Because how a man responds to the fact that he just got thrown off this stallion is very telling to what sort of a man he is. 
Because there's a lot of men that will get the initial vision and they'll get on that stallion, they'll be thrown off and they'll land in that mud and they'll give up. They'll say, oh, I guess it's impossible. And, but there's another sort of man that will grit his teeth and that will rise up, brush off whatever's on him, look back at this stallion and go, I don't know how to ride you, but I'm gonna figure it out. Now, what I would say is, a man that has gotten on, been bucked off, gritted his teeth, gotten back up, gotten on, got bucked off, gritted his teeth, gotten back on, got bucked off, gritted his teeth, that's a two. Don't marry a two. And so, I know, I know that's hard. This is really hard for some of the young ladies in here, like, oh, a two. I mean, because, I mean, are there twos even out there? I mean, if there's a two, my answer is I will and I do even before they ask. And yet, don't marry a two because a two has not yet learned how to stay in the saddle. You see, what causes a man to be what I'm going to call marriageable isn't that he's done, fully matured, completed. It's that he knows the secret to staying in the saddle. If you know how to stay in the saddle, you will get from here to here even if it takes a while. You will get there. The problem is most men give up somewhere along the line. Or they continue to try in their own effort. You see, what's wrong with this man at the level two is that he doesn't yet know how to accomplish the impossible because it really is impossible. What he's trying to do is impossible. And it's really hard for a man to come to that conclusion that he can't do it. But the great secret of masculinity is this. I can't. Doesn't that sound like a defeat right there? No, that's not the end of the sentence though. I can't, but he can that grand goal called mighty godly masculinity is not gained by a man gritting his own teeth. And here's the secret. I'm going to give this to you guys. Some of you have heard me say this before, but it's, it's, it's a gem. It's worth a lot, okay? There's only one that has ever tamed this stallion, that has ever been able to ride this stallion, and his name is Jesus Christ. You see, this stallion is perfect righteousness. And if you try and tame harness and ride perfect righteousness in your own ability, in your own gritted teeth, you will find that it'll be a fruitless endeavor. You will not be able to do it. However, if a man is willing to humble himself, the master horseman taps his lap and says, up here, into my lap, I'll ride for you. You know how hard that is for a man? It's like, excuse me, (laughs) wait a minute, God, I don't want to, I mean, I have dignity here. I don't want to get into your lap. Well, if you don't get into my lap, you can have no part with me. In other words, the secret to writing this righteousness, this fire-breathing, smoke-snorting stallion is to humble yourself and to rest in his ability to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And that's the three. And what I would say to every young woman in here that's still unmarried the three is appropriate to marry. He has learned the basics. And with those basics, he can go the distance. It's, it'll be, you know, there'll be all sorts of ups and downs along the way. However, once you learn the secret of what we're going to talk about today, it's, it establishes a foundation in your life and in your soul and in your behavior because you recognize you can't do it, but he can do it. And if you continue to foster that, You grow strong in Christianity. So the word for this in scripture is grace. So what you see when the master horseman is on the horse 
And he pats his, his, uh, his thigh and says, up here, sit in my lap. What is he offering you? Grace. He's offering you the power to accomplish something that you can't accomplish on your own. Who's the one that has conquered the mighty stallion? Jesus. He is the one who can do it for you. The ability of God to do something on your behalf is grace. You are saved by this. You are saved by the fact that God does something for you. He goes to work for you. This is my action movement. If you're listening to this on podcast, you're missing a really powerful looking movement. I'm on the stage running. Uh, And so the action of God is his rescuing work. He's a savior. And so when he goes to work, he comes to save. And so when our God comes to save, what is he saving? What is that saving called? It's called grace. It's the action, the work of God, the labor of God on our behalf. And so God did the work. This is what grace is. This is a, there's a lot of different ways we could define grace, okay? There's a lot of different lenses we could put on. That's why Paul calls it the manifold wonder of grace because it has many folds to it. It's like a variegated color scheme. If you, we had all these cloths and they were like, you know those um, uh, quilt, those squares, quilt squares? Actually, there's probably a name for them. I don't know what they are. Uh, and so say we lined up about 50 of them and we sewed each of the ends together so it was a really long, thin line of colorful squares. And then we folded each one upon the top of the other and we called the whole thing grace. And yet each of that grace is made up of 50 different colored cloths. A lot of people will take one color of that entire string of cloths and call it grace. And they'll call like mercy. So say there's a red one there and it's, it's like, this is grace. Well, that's a part of grace. So when you call mercy grace, you've actually, you've drained grace of its power and you've amplified mercy beyond what it's supposed to be. Mercy is just mercy. It's a wonderful quality and God is merciful. There's no doubt about it. But God is when in his saving work, he is more than just mercy. And so as a result, it's like calling salt bread. No, salt is a part of bread. But if anyone were to take salt and say this is bread, they would be misleading you. They would be misleading themselves. Because though it is a piece of the bread, it is an ingredient in the whole, it is not the whole. And that's the way grace is. Grace is the power of God on our behalf to bring about salvation. God is doing something for us. And he did the work. So God, in times past, 2,000 years ago, did a work for us at the cross. And he saved us. And that is grace at work for us. God came and worked for us. But God, just because God died on the cross, was buried and resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God, doesn't mean he stopped working. God's grace is still active. And he is ever living to make intercession for us. He will save us to the uttermost. God is a present tense God and a future tense, if you want to say it that way. He's the I am, which means he was, he is, and he always will be a savior. He is a God of all grace. So therefore, God did the work, God does the work, and God will always do the work. This is grace, and this is what saves us. You see, we're not just saved by the fact that Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago. We're saved by the fact that the Holy Spirit is laboring to work and awaken us and to convict us of our sin and then to apply that shed blood and the power and the merit of it to us today. We are still saved by God's work in our lives right now. And tomorrow and the next day, there's no day where we can suddenly say, oh, I don't need grace anymore. I'm going to be fine. We will always be saved by grace. 
And we access that grace through faith. So by believing. When we look to that cross, we see the work of Christ on our behalf and we're saved by his grace. Today, in your trials, in your temptations, in the different things that will cause struggle in your life, you need a Savior. And so what do you do? You look to your Savior in faith, and you will receive grace, power, to actually respond. So God does it. Now, most of us have the idea that God did it. You know, we, we have that down. God did it. But we don't oftentimes understand that God does it. So when I say that we are saved by grace through faith, what we oftentimes think of as saved means capital S salvation from eternal condemnation and hellfire. When in actuality, we are saved not just in the big S or capital S sense, but in the lowercase s sense. Every single one of us is going to be attacked today at some level. We will have challenge. We will have trial today. Well, what do we need? We need to be saved. We need to be saved with a lowercase s salvation. God's working on our behalf, the Holy Spirit undergirding us and giving us grace to not respond in kind to that very rude person, to not heed the temptation of the devil. How do we overcome these things? We need grace. And so we're gonna call that the God does it form of grace. Most of us know that God did it, but we don't recognize that God does it. He still is working. So the small s that is often missing in most of our lives. For by grace are ye saved through faith. So capital S and lowercase s salvation. So first of all, let's talk about the capital S or the big S salvation. It's rescue from the coming judgment. This is how most of us understand the gospel. We understand that we are saved in a capital S way, which is true. We are. You are saved from the coming judgment through believing that he did it. That's true. So that's, remember, you are saved by grace through faith. So you are saved from the coming judgment through believing that he did it. Now, small s salvation is rescue in the moment-by-moment battle while here on earth. You are saved in the moment-by-moment battle while here on earth through believing that he does it. So the same way we are saved in the big sense by looking to that cross That cross is like a river that flows down from a mighty mountain. And we must recognize that that is our life today, that that same grace is flowing today in our our life in this exact moment. And the very thing that we need to overcome the sinful tendencies that we have is grace. And so we believe and we are saved by grace. John 14. Do you not believe that I am in the Father? This is Jesus talking. And the Father in me. The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he does the works. This is a very interesting statement because we're talking about Jesus here. This is God Almighty in a human body. Now, if there was ever a man that could do it on his own, it would be Jesus. And yet Jesus purposely doesn't do it on his own because he is demonstrating the perfection of a man. He is living as a man ought to live. And so as a result, God comes to this earth, gets inside of one of these things known as a human body, and does it the way it is supposed to be done. And so he does it in total dependence. So I'm going to read this again just so that you can catch it. He is is giving communications 
in the sense of being a human, though we know he is God. He is actually the creator of the heavens and the earth that has limited himself. He has humbled himself. He has become obedient even unto death on a cross. He has given up the controls. He has given up, in a sense, his godness in the sense that he can do all things and become dependent upon God to do all things in and through him. He is showing how a man ought to live. And he then says, follow me. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? You see, the language of the new covenant is, do you not realize that I am in Christ and Christ is in me? You see, this is the language of the new covenant that Christ is, is inaugurating. He, through his shed blood, is going to create a new covenant in that blood, which will bring us into a relationship of intimacy with the Most High God. Jesus continues and says, The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. But the Father that dwells in me, he does the works. What an amazing statement. In other words, God, Jesus, is dependent upon God to do work in and through him. This is, as we will continue, remember I titled this The Hand and the Glove, this is glove talk. In other words, a glove recognizes that in and of itself it can do nothing. And so what a glove needs is it needs to be filled with something. A glove is made in the image of a hand. And when that hand is absent from it, that glove can do nothing. But when that hand, which is made in its image but is different than the glove, in other words, it's not to mix up the glove and the hand because the glove in the human sense is made in the image but isn't God. Like I'm not going to say that you are God. I'm going to say that you are made in the image of God to be a God bearer. You are to bear the likeness. You are to bear the movements. You are to speak the words and do the actions of God. But how would that work? You must have something enter inside of you and express itself in you. You see, you are made as a glove. Jesus humbles himself and becomes a glove. Though he is God, he humbles himself to behave and to, and to participate in life down here in this earth as a glove. And, the, and God Almighty, the Father, dwells in him. And now what the Father does, you see in and through Jesus. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, says Jesus. So what you see Jesus doing is actually what the Father is doing. It's hand-glove talk. And so... Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. What, what works is he doing? He's doing the works that the Father is doing. So he says, these same works you're going to be doing as well. But the way that the New Testament is going to articulate it is that now Christ is going to come in and live inside of us. And it's Christ in us, which is the hope of glory. The hope of expressing the fullness, the manifest understanding of who God is. So he that believes on me, the works that I do, I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Why would Jesus going unto the Father have anything to do with us doing greater works? Because when he goes unto the Father, he is able to send forth, if you want to say it, the hand, the power of God unto salvation. He is going to send forth that which will animate the human body. That which is meant to live inside of this, which was inside of it when Adam was first created, but then exited Adam. And now Adam is left to his own devices as a calfskin work glove. And in and of himself, he may still look rather impressive because he was created in the image of God. 
It's a nice glove, don't get me wrong. However, that glove cannot perform that which only the hand can perform. And yet, so God brings the law and says, you must perform what the hand would perform. You must be perfect as the hand is perfect. You must be holy as the hand is holy. And we're like, okay, as a glove, we're like, I'll do it for you, God. You can't do it. So until the glove finally recognizes that it can't actually perform that which only the hand can perform, it's at odds, okay, with, with, with the hand. It cannot actually do it. So this is the essence of the gospel. We must come to the end of ourselves. We must recognize that only he can save. The invisible hand built to do it all. So it's sort of hard to put a picture of an invisible hand up on the screen because you wouldn't see anything. So I should have done that, though. I should have just had an invisible hand there. I go, no, there's an invisible. Can't you see it? It's invisible, but it's there. Instead, I'm showing you a hand because that's, of course, what makes sense to us. And so we have a hand on the screen. Now I want you to imagine that you cannot see it. Okay, now if you can't see the hand, what's going to happen when it points to Ben Derby? Ben Derby, are you seeing it? Do you see it, the hand pointing at you? See, he said, what hand? That's a, good, that's a really good response, because he can't see it. Even though God Almighty, I'm, I'm not God Almighty, this is symbolic, okay, is pointing at Ben, Ben doesn't see that God is singling him out. Why? Because he can't see the hand. Now, Suzanne Moles is standing over there, sitting over there, and, I, and this hand waves at Suzanne. Can you see it? What? Oh, no! She's missing the fact that God is saying, hey, Suzanne, I love you. She's missing it. Why? Because the hand is invisible. Now, Tamara Yoder's over there, and the hand beckons Tamara to come. Does she see it? Do you, do you see that hand? Oh, she's missing it. God is literally inviting Tamara into fellowship, and she can't see it. That's because the hand is invisible. But God designed something to enter into that, or to have that hand enter into it, to rest upon that hand, that once it does, it brings clarity in a natural physical realm to the movements of the invisible. So if a glove were to rest, to humble itself, and to rest upon this hand, watch what happens. This is amazing, guys. Watch, watch. So it points. Now, there's a glove on this hand, on this invisible hand. The hand's invisible, but the glove, hey, that's natural stuff. We can see it. So then the hand points at Ben. What does Ben see? He sees it. Oh, this is amazing. Suddenly, that which is invisible is made visible. And then, uh, Suzanne, look at, look at this. Do you see it? Do you see it? It's waving at you. Oh, and she sees it this time. Because a glove is making real, is making visible that which is invisible. And how about this one? Uh, the hand is beckoning Tamara. Do, do you see? She sees it, guys. She sees it. See, this is the miracle. It's called the mystery of godliness that God behavior would be revealed in and through us. It's a mystery. It's been hidden from ages and generations, but now revealed that God would actually inhabit his people. You see, there's a problem with these hands of ours and these gloves of ours, but they are filled with all sorts of nonsense, okay? These, these gloves, because we're like, hey, I'm filled. Yeah, you're filled with a whole bunch of hankies. You pull out all the hankies, and they all say self on them. And you're like, oh, I liked that one. I stitched that one, that one up special for myself a long time ago. And you have to pull out all this you, all this self needs to be emptied out so that the hand can come in and animate. So the invisible hand, it's built 
to do it all. A hand is a really impressive thing. If you were to uh, do an evaluation, do a study on hands, it's really impressive. And then if you were to do a contrasting study on gloves, it's interesting, but a glove is actually, it's, it's a great invention. It is. And it is amazing because it perfectly matches the hand. But in and of itself, it is powerless. A glove by itself, separated from a hand, is useless. It's good for nothing but the burn pile, truly. But a glove that is able to be used by the hand has value. And so if we were to do the test, the classic test, okay, on the glove, let's just try it. I'm just going to give a little sampling of how the glove works. We're going to hold up the glove in front of all of you, and we're going to give it a command. Just a simple one, okay? We're not even going to give it a complex one. We're going to like build a card house. That would be more complex, right? But we're going to say, pull a weed, okay? We'll see how, pull a weed, oh glove. Now we're going to let it go. And it lands on the ground. It's like, you know, that wasn't very impressive. You see, that which the, hand, the glove is supposed to accomplish, it cannot accomplish in its own strength. It's funny how that truth takes a long time to somehow invade our understanding. And we will still try and keep the law of God. We will attempt to be perfect as he is perfect in our own strength. We will attempt to reach the destination that only the snorting stallion can reach when he's harnessed by the master horseman. We'll try and reach it in our own ability and our own horsemanship. And when we finally come to the end of ourselves and say, I can't do this, then we are ready for salvation. See, salvation comes through humility, through the channel of humility and faith. We say, you can save me. You can get me there. Your hand inside of me can do this. We see that. I am just a glove, but you are able to do it. We put our faith in the hand. We put our faith in that which is invisible. We put our faith in his ability to save. And guess what? It all starts working. So the work glove is built to reveal the invisible hand that does it all. So the invisible hand is built to do it all, but the work glove is built to reveal the invisible hand that does it all. Jesus became a work glove, and he functioned perfectly the way a work glove ought to function. It is really hard for us to comprehend that Jesus, who is God, became a work glove. I mean, why would he become so low to save us? You see, he came and became as one of us to save us as a high priest, identifying in our weakness. Incredible. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself. Stop. This is God Almighty talking. The Son can do nothing of himself. Jesus, I don't know that I received that. I don't know that I can accept that statement. You're God who willfully became a man. Yes, he's God. That's why he did it perfectly. However, he's functioning as a man on purpose to rescue those of us that are rebellious work gloves. The son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. For whatsoever things he does, these also does the son likewise. Jesus was a glove who never removed himself from the hand but maintained a perfect dependence upon it. When the hand pointed, the glove pointed. When the hand gripped, the glove gripped. When the hand waved, the glove waved. He was in perfect harmony with the movements of the hand, never once leaving the hand to explore the possibilities of self-gloveness or glove righteousness. Understanding glove impotence. 
Impotence means inability, lack of power. And a glove in and of itself does not have the power to do. It does not diminish the value of the glove. God chose the glove. God made the glove on purpose as a very specific revelatory device. He desires to use gloves. So even though we're powerless to do, he desires to use us. But we must recognize he's the one with the power. We're the ones that are meant to reveal the power when we depend upon him. So John 15, 5, without me, you can do nothing. So let's uh, add in some parentheses here just to sort of expand our understanding of that. Without the invisible hand in you, you can do nothing. Or how about this one? Without grace, you can do nothing. You see, what I've indirectly done by teaching you this way is I'm instructing you in what grace is. I'm showing you what grace is by talking about the invisible hand because that is grace. We are saved by it. We're not saved by our own working. We're saved by his working. We don't have anything to boast about. We boast in his work. What he is, and look at what Christ has done. That's what we get excited about. The power of grace revealed. So what I'm going to do, again, this is just a reminder of how it's done. How we get her done as Christians. How we get from here to there. We see the vision. We see the marvel of, of Christian living. We see these great works that God desires to work in us, but we don't know how to produce them. It starts with us humbling ourselves and acknowledging, okay, God, I'm a glove. And in and of, my, in and of myself, I can do nothing. But Lord, I want to deny myself. I want to get all these hankies with self uh, stitched into them out. I want to be emptied so that I can be filled with you. Grace and the Holy Spirit are synonymous, by the way. It's just God's power at work. God's very life in us animating. God needs a body to reveal himself. He made it that way. He could come down in a cloud of glory, but he's chosen bodies through which to do his working. It's the church of Jesus Christ that he chose to reveal the manifold wisdom of God into the heavenly realms. We are his chosen vehicle of communication with this world. So let's go through the scriptures just to sort of freshly enjoy uh, the message of grace. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. So how is Paul what he is? By the grace of God. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. What was laboring? The grace of God was laboring. You see, many of us have this idea of grace as being a snuggle from God, or as our family would say, a snuggle from God, where God sort of comes up and we're in the mud and we're like destitute and he comes over our, you know, we're facing this way, he comes over our, our back shoulder and our, wraps an arm around our neck and goes, I just want you to know, I love you. I love you though you're a disaster. And you know, he just snuggles with us a little. And then he goes on. Right? And we're like, oh, I'm just so glad that God snuggles with me when I'm in the mud. I'm so glad that he hasn't just thrown me out. Now, there's a part truth in that. That's why it's tricky. Does God love us even when we're in the mud? Yes. But he loves us too much to leave us there. You see, the grace of God is a rescuing work. God rescues with grace. He empowers with grace to do, to move. In this case, to be lifted out of mud and to be washed with the uh, the fire hose of God's uh, shed blood so that we would be whiter than snow and that our feet would be set upon something solid like rock 
and that we would be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit of God so that we could begin to behave as God would behave, speak as God would speak, think as God would have us speak with the mind of Christ. In other words, God desires to give us what we need to live this life. So Paul is laboring more abundantly than they all, yet it's not him laboring, it's the grace of God which was in him that was laboring. Isn't that a weird thought to think of grace going, hmm, hmm. that's why you see my, my running movement. It's, it's action. So my summary would be grace is given that we might labor more abundantly. 2 Corinthians 9.8. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. So how are you going to abound to every good work? Well, you need grace for it. Grace is given that we may have sufficiency in all things, and grace is given that we may abound to every good work. Let us therefore, this is Hebrews 4, 16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what do you need in a time of need? Well, you need grace, because grace is given as our means of help in time of need. This isn't just a hug, guys. You have time of need, and what do you need? You need grace to go through it. You need something to lift you, something to push you, something to empower you. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So how are you going to serve God acceptably? Well, you need grace. Grace is given whereby we may serve God acceptably. So that's just a sampling. There's like 127 references to charis, which is the Greek word for grace in the New Testament. And when you study those, you will find God working. You will find power to do. It's an extraordinary study. It's, a, it's highly recommended. Uh, the Laugh Out Loud ref, uh, Revelation. This is Charles Spurgeon, who was preparing a, a message on uh, 2 Corinthians 12.9. And this is a Saturday night. He was going to be preaching Sunday morning. And in his study, his meditation, his prayer time on this, suddenly he started laughing. And it's like he saw it. He saw it. And it was so extraordinary, almost you could call it absurd, how ridiculous it is that we would at all panic, that we will not have sufficiency to live this life. See, many of us look out there and we see a dying world. We see... Uh, things are challenging for Christians moving forward. I think all of us know that. It's like, okay, if you're going to walk the Christian walk, you're going to probably have harder times in the future than easier ones. And so that causes a little trembling uh, inside of us. And yet, when you understand what Scripture says, you begin to laugh out loud with Charles Spurgeon. Because all of us instinctively have a concern, and our prayers sound sort of like this, God, I'm just concerned that, and you could fill in the blank after that, you know, that I won't have the resource, that I won't have the courage, that I won't have the, uh, the humility when this happens, that I won't, whatever it is. I mean, we have our fill-in-the-blank problems, okay? So our, our concerns are similar to the ones that Charles Spurgeon was laughing about. So Charles Spurgeon had a few different illustrations. Uh, one of them was uh, a little fishy uh, in the ocean, and the little fishy was crying out to God, saying, God! I'm just so concerned that there's not going to be enough ocean water for me to swim in. And then God says, oh, little fishy, my ocean water is sufficient for thee. And then there was another illustration of a little uh, mouse 
who was in the granaries of Egypt. Remember when they were at their fullest, uh, when Joseph had been storing them up for seven years? And so he's caught in there, and he you know, has some grain in front of him, and he's concerned. Oh, God, I'm just so concerned that there will be not enough grain for me as a little mouse. And then God, in his ever-sensitive, tender way, says, Oh, little mousy, my grain will be sufficient for thee. And then there's a, a man, I believe was the next illustration, that was standing uh, on the top of a vast mountain and, you know, in this vast world in which he lives, and he cries out to God, Oh, God! I'm concerned that there'll not be enough oxygen in the world to sustain me. Says, oh, little man, my oxygen will be sufficient for thee. And as Charles Spurgeon would say, that's the idea of sufficient in this phrase. You're wondering if you can make it? You're wondering, even if it's challenging, if you can go through this? You don't know the trials that are up ahead. You don't know the temptations that might be right around the corner. But you do know something. And that is that his grace is sufficient for thee. It's a fact. And so no matter, even if in front of you is just a little ocean water, you don't see the vast ocean. He does. And so he's telling you right now, believe me, (laughs) there's plenty. There's plenty where that came from. And you're the little mouse. You're just in one corner of the granary. You know, you can't see it all. You don't know that there's seven huge uh, well, there's seven years full. I don't know how many uh, bins there were that were full, but there's seven years of plenty that have been stored up. Oh, little mousy, you need not fear. And for the man, there's plenty of oxygen in this world, guys. It's not going to run out just because you take in a deep, deep breath of it. There's more where that came from. You take in a deep, deep breath of the grace of God today, and guess what? There's more for your next breath. Everything you need will be supplied, which is why this statement in 2 Corinthians is so profound, and even the context of it and what's going to flow out of this statement is so profound for any of us that have ever studied it. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. God doesn't mind us being little mice or little fishies or little men in this vast world. He is the supply. We are not the ones that get her done. We're the ones that he has chosen to participate in his grand getting her done. So I don't know if you guys have ever heard my story of uh, Hudson uh, shoveling with me, shoveling the, the driveway with me when he was, let's say, four or five. But uh, I had a red shovel, and he had a little red shovel. It was like this little miniature thing. It was really cool. It was sort of like a matchbox car, a Hot Wheels version of a, of a shovel. And so he has this teeny little shovel, and we're, we get to have hot chocolate uh, when we are done shoveling the driveway. But this is a huge driveway. I mean, it's just this massive driveway that we have. And so I, I go out there, and he goes out there all bundled up. And so I'm starting to shovel. And it was this huge snowstorm where you have to, like, chop into the snow and, like, just, uh, chop in, like, halfway down and, and get it, then do the full way because it was dense, heavy, wet snow. And so Hudson's there, and he picks up some snow and throws it up in the air. It lands right on the area I just shoveled. I'm like, hey, buddy, you want to you get that off to the side? And so he does it for, oh, like two minutes. And then he's cold, and he wants to go in. So he runs in to Mama, and then he comes out 15 minutes later, runs in after two minutes, comes back out. So throughout the day, who's shoveling the driveway? Okay, Daddy's shoveling the driveway. Every time Hudson's out there, he's throwing snow up and sort of messing up the nice lines that I have. And yet, Daddy delights to have his son participate. 
And at the very end, guess who's out there with me when we give the final little shovel full? And then I say, buddy, we did it. We're done. We're finished. Go in and tell mama that we are done. We can have our hot chocolate. So he goes running in there. And mama, 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 daddy and I finished shoveling the driveway. And guess what? Daddy doesn't correct him on that. Daddy doesn't say, hey, you didn't actually do anything but cause problems. <laughs> daddy doesn't do that. Daddy loves to have him share in the glory of the finished shoveled driveway. I want him to have that hot chocolate. And some of you could say, he doesn't deserve the hot chocolate. Of course, none of you would actually say that because you know the preciousness of shared relationship and shared reward in something like that because you all know that Hudson couldn't have shoveled that driveway on his own. And so as a result, he needed a daddy who would come in and do the work for him. But that daddy loves to share that work and the victory of that work and the finished nature of that work with his son. Grace. We are saved by it. Many of us, if we were to evaluate what we've accomplished this side of heaven, it might be an accurate picture to say we stuck our shovel in and threw it up in the air and got it all over Jesus' shoes. In other words, did we actually help? I'm not sure. But he delights to use us in his working because he's going to change the world. The fact that he uses us in doing it is a profound, befuddling, extraordinary thought. Father, we celebrate this reality today. We celebrate the fact that your grace is sufficient. We as gloves stand before you and we simply say, fill us, Lord. Do in us today what you desire to do. May we not get in the way. For your glory, honor, and praise, we ask this. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.